Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week's podcast is about a noble idea whose time may have come and gone. Eighteen years ago, the United Nations proclaimed a new doctrine, the responsibility to protect. The idea was that the international community has a responsibility to step in and prevent genocides or mass atrocities before they happen. So, no more holocausts or Rwandan genocides. My guest is Shashi Tharoor. He's now a prominent opposition politician in India, and he was Under-Secretary-General at the UN at the time when the doctrine of the responsibility to protect was first elaborated. So, has the world got any better at stopping mass murder? April 7th marks the start of Rwanda's most violent 100 days. Hutu extremists massacred the Tutsi minority with machetes in hand. Radio stations and newspapers broadcast hate propaganda, urging people to weed out the cockroaches. The Rwandan genocide of 1994 shocked the world. Over the course of about 100 days, armed militias killed over 500,000 members of the Tutsi ethnic minority group as the world stood by and watched. A determination to prevent future Rwandas persuaded the countries of the United Nations to embrace a responsibility to protect. In 2005, Kofi Annan, the UN Secretary-General of the time, explained the new idea. You will have a collective response and a collective responsibility to protect populations from genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing and crimes against humanity. You will make clear your willingness to take timely and decisive and collective action through the Security Council. The idea was noble, but the results seem to have been disappointing. There's been little sign of international intervention to protect, for example, the Rohingya ethnic minority in Myanmar or the beleaguered citizens of Mariupol when Russia bombarded the Ukrainian city. So was the responsibility to protect, or R2P, as it's often known, just a flawed idea? That was the question I discussed with Shashi Tharoor. We actually had that conversation on stage in London recently at an event called the Mortimer Dialogue, named after my predecessor at the FT, Edward Mortimer. After a distinguished career as a newspaper columnist, Edward left the paper and joined the UN. And Edward, in fact, wrote the first speech in 2001 in which Kofi Annan laid out the idea of a responsibility to protect. Shashi Tharoor was a close colleague of both Edward Mortimer and Kofi Annan. I began our conversation by asking him to look back at the questions posed by Annan to the United Nations. If humanitarian intervention is indeed an unacceptable assault on sovereignty, Kofi asked the General Assembly, how should we respond to a Rwanda, to a Srebrenica, which is, as you remember, the massacre in Bosnia, to gross and systematic violations of human rights, 
that offend every precept of our common humanity. He put this to the membership as a question they needed to address. The General Assembly in 2000 had to confront this question. And the Canadians, bless their souls, said, this is an important thing, we can't leave it unaddressed. So they financed something that was called the International Commission for Intervention and State Sovereignty. And this then resulted in a remarkable report, which they called the Responsibility to Protect, which essentially changed the idea of sovereignty as inviolability to one of sovereignty as responsibility. So it was a very interesting concept. I should mention that there had been, since the 1980s, a rather controversial doctrine first articulated by the French humanitarian Bernard Kouchner called the droit d'ingérence, the right to interfere or the right to intervene. And that never quite caught on because it was seen by many developing countries as a rich, powerful Western voice claiming some sort of right to intervene in their affairs. So the responsibility to protect was easier to command. Uh... Exactly. It turned the whole thing around. So you have the report. Then it comes back to the UN. Yeah. And at what point does it become settled? So in 2003, war? there was a world summit at the head of state level, head of state, head of government level uh-huh. at the United Nations. And they endorsed this concept. It was adopted as a, a principle. And has it changed the world? And how did it work out? Well, I think the intention was both to create a new norm that governments would cite, that academics would cite, and also to create a new practice. As we saw with Rwanda, governments are unwilling very often to commit troops. So you had to presume that with this norm, you would get governments willing to risk blood and treasure, as it were, sending their troops to look after civilians in faraway countries. Second, you had to presume that not only would they do that, they would actually be willing to give it legitimacy through the Security Council. See, that was very important too, because the Security Council's authorization is what gives an imprimatur of legitimacy to an action which otherwise could have been seen as a violation of sovereignty. So you would have, on the one hand, the council would legitimize it, on the other, troops would be provided by member states. And the third principle, of course, is that there would be support in the domestic publics of these countries. You may remember Tony Blair made a speech soon after this. In fact, I think it was at the 2003 summit or very soon thereafter, where he said, now the West will intervene militarily only in defense of its values and not of its interests which when you think about it is a mind-boggling statement for the prime minister of a country to make. <laughs> and needless to say, it didn't quite happen that way, did it, Gideon? No. Okay, so, so have there been any worked examples of the responsibility to protect? Some would say that the closest we came to was Libya, 2011. Well, let, let me start off by saying that when the Iraq intervention happened, when America and Britain, having failed to get a Security Council authorization, marched in any way into Iraq, Their initial statements, and you can Google this if you wish, couched their intervention in terms of humanitarianism. Saddam Hussein was oppressing his own people, had also attacked Kuwait, had attacked Iran, etc. And it was necessary to protect the people of the region. It didn't wash at that time. uh, And it was coupled with WMD, which is the one that people remember. Yes, exactly. So the idea never quite stuck. But you're right. When Libya came up some years later, 2011, that became the actual basis for the Security Council to discuss the issue. And on that occasion, the argument was Gaddafi is an awful man. He's busy massacring his own civilians. We need to stop him. The argument was that you need to level the playing field because you can't let this one man massacre everyone else. And so the council authorized all necessary means to prevent this from happening. Now, when the famous report was written in 2001, it wasn't only about 
responsibility to protect using force. It was very much spelled out in the report that you could have a gradation of measures, start off with sanctions or embargoes, then move towards possible uh, preventive deployment. If prevention doesn't work, then to send troops, but also to then promote peace and reconciliation, to create conditions that would bring the conflict to an end. Whereas what happened in Libya, as we know, was that after the bombing of Benghazi, the bombing became wider. There was an attack on Gaddafi's own civilian camp, which killed a child of his and a few other civilians. And it became very clear that the objectives of the Libyan intervention had changed from protecting Libyan civilians to overthrowing the regime. Now, you must remember that China had abstained in that resolution. India was a member of the council at the time, had abstained. I mean, no one prevented it. Uh, the Russians may have abstained as well. But remember, this was a time when Putin was still talking about Russia joining NATO. So you know, we were still some years away from the Crimean invasion and so on. And what happened was that the powers that were bombing Libya could point to the sanctity of a UN Security Council resolution. That really created quite a backlash in many countries. So you feel that France, Britain, the United States exceeded their mandate and therefore discredited the concept? Well, Britain and the US was Iraq. Libya was all the NATO countries. It was a NATO bombing. It wasn't just two nations. And they can claim, and there is some justification for saying this, that UN Security Council resolutions are historically subject to interpretation when you implement them, and that therefore their understanding of all necessary measures might have included measures necessary to change an awful regime. But there was a definite backlash, certainly in Russia and China. The Russians did feel they'd been sold a bill of goods. The Chinese felt the same way. And many developing countries have spoken to Indian diplomats in the council at that time, and they said the West never let on that their intention was to go through with regime change. But thinking about it realistically, could you really, I mean, given what we know of Gaddafi, really say that you would protect Libyan civilians long into the future without removing Gaddafi? I mean, the guy was a monster. So that was the argument of the West. But that raises very troubling questions in developing country capitals, saying, does that mean that every interpretation of responsibility to protect could imply a permission to overthrow a regime? Because that's not something that they were prepared to agree to. And, you know, if you look at the world in that last decade, the decade of the tens, I suppose, there were quite an awful lot of, well, even a few years before that, Sri Lanka. You know, no one invoked responsibility to protect, no one sought to intervene. Because the Yemen war, more recently. Syria. Well, Syria, there was an attempt made to invoke responsibility to protect, and of course, the Russians would have none of it. It never got to the stage where they needed to veto, as far as I remember, but it was very clear they would not agree, and the Chinese too. And the Russians then, of course, arrayed themselves on the side of Assad, who was the one being accused of killing his civilians and of leading a murderous regime. But the fact is that in those circumstances, the Security Council was not able to do anything about Syria. So and, 20 years on, have we learned that it's a very nice idea, but it doesn't actually work? No, it can be made to work, it seems to me. But you have to understand very clearly those advocating it and those implementing it what the ground rules are, what are the criteria that you can rely upon to actually intervene, what are the things you're allowed to resort to. I mean, a loose phrase like all necessary measures. It was a very convenient phrase that didn't actually seem to threaten the use of force, but at the same time implicitly authorized it. And um, I will say that if you look very, very solidly at this, you're not going to get many countries on the council agreeing to legitimizing a responsibility to protect based operation unless all of these things are spelled out. Until you say, what are the criteria on the basis of which this will be exercised and how would you go ahead and implement it? Having said that, the world has also changed, Gideon. I remember the era when I was dealing with Yugoslavia when the public clamor about 
for God's sake, do something, was rampant. Today in America, the public clamor is, for God's sake, do nothing. Do not intervene. Do not send our troops abroad. Do not take risks. So it's a different world. Yeah, so the American domestic consensus has changed, but also I'm sure the world's view of American intervention has changed. The idea that the Russians or the Chinese would ever sign off on that ever again seems That's to right. me implausible. But don't forget, Hammarskjöld had found a solution to that particular problem way back in the mid-50s, which is to get the smaller and middle powers to intervene. That was peacekeeping, which he really created out of whole cloth. It's not mentioned in the Charter. Yeah. It was a way of responding to the Cold War standoff between Russia and America. And now you have a new Cold War incipient, so not quite the same as the old one, but still, where Russia and China on the one hand and the West on the other will never agree on anything. They could agree on sending the Irish and the Canadians and the Indians and the Fijians or whatever to go off and intervene somewhere. That's not impossible, provided the ground rules are very clear and they're told how far they can go and what they cannot do. And it's interesting, isn't it, when you look at the language that Putin used to justify invading Ukraine, it was a slightly warped form of responsibility to protect. I mean, he was claiming that. to protect people in eastern Ukraine. That's right. And he talked about the neo-Nazi groups that had made common cause with the Ukrainian army and all sorts of things. So, I mean, that was the justification. I don't think it washed with anybody. No. Because don't forget that the critics of responsibility to protect are at the same time staunch defenders of sovereignty. In fact, that's the basis for their criticism. So how on earth are they going to accept what Russia has done when Russia has blatantly violated sovereignty? Yeah. You talked about how a lot of people in, forgive the phrase, in the global south were suspicious of Kushner's idea of the right of intervention and that responsibility to protect seemed more acceptable. Is the responsibility to protect still an idea that might command an audience in India or in South Africa or wherever, or do you think it's been discredited? I think to some degree its application has been seen as questionable, but I cannot accept the proposition that the idea should be discarded because it responded to a genuine human concern about egregious violations. I mean, killing a million people has happened in Rwanda is about as egregious as it gets. And do we want to stand by and watch that happen again? I think it will work, going back to some of the original thinking, the Blairite language, when values are involved and not interest directly. When intervention seems to be about oil or seems to be about the geopolitical chessboard of the Middle East or whatever, then there will be resistance and there will be concern about it. But when you have a situation like a Rwanda, many others in places in the world in which clearly other countries don't have a stake and they're acting in a disinterested way, yeah. that could conceivably work. But the problem is going to be you'll need political will in your domestic setup. You'll need the legitimacy of a Security Council resolution. Certainly, for example, a country like India or Ireland would not send troops without that. And you would also need the resources that it takes to do these things. And right now, the willingness to supply any of these three is actually not particularly high. And you also said this is only going to come into play in a very extreme situation, a Rwanda, where people are about to be massacred. Because the word genocide is now used much Too more loosely. loosely. You much know, more. people say the Uyghurs are suffering a genocide. The Ukrainians claim there's a genocide against Ukrainians. So should we say only when there's lives immediately at risk? That's right. I think that's one thing. To begin with, there's also a gradation of the responses. For example... It could say that the first responsibility would be to try and bring about a change in the circumstances through punitive sanctions, embargoes, and the like. Uh, diplomatic isolation, there are various things you can do to increase the pain level for a country that's about to commit a violation. There's also, of course, the classic peacemaking role of the Secretary General, 
which I do feel could have been exercised in Ukraine. I mean, the British and the Americans were shouting from every rooftop for seven weeks that the Russians are about to invade. And it dismays me that the Secretary General of the UN didn't hop on a plane and go to Moscow to find out what their intentions were and whether a solution could have been found. Because when you think about it, that's what Kofi did in 98 when Clinton first threatened the bombing of Baghdad. I was with him. We traveled to Iraq. In the end, he was not able to buy more than six or seven months of peace because the next violation by the Iraqis did bring about the bombing. But at least the obligation to try and, of course, to lay out the conditions under which. So the Americans said, OK, we'll hold off on the bombing if you can get Saddam to cooperate with the IAEA inspectors and Ambassador Butler's intrusive inspections and so on. The Iraqis did agree. So you could use all of these techniques first. But if all else fails, you must be prepared to authorize force. I mean, you said that it was the product of a particular historical moment, which you described. Was it also the product of an unusually effective UN Secretary General or one who had a certain charisma? I believe so. I mean, he certainly liked to think outside the box. In fact, when he decided to make a speech on intervention, the very first one that Edward wrote, we had some real questions about whether this was a wise thing for a brand new Secretary General to attempt to do. But he was clear in his mind that if at all there was anything to be said for the notion of the moral authority of the office, you know, the secular pope, I think the economists dubbed him the secular pope at that time, then it meant raising some of the uncomfortable questions. He was quite clear in his mind that this was worth saying and that he would say it. And I was in the audience and there was a sort of frisson through the hall as he spoke. There was this real sense of something, a sort of new door had been opened or at least a window that was letting an awful lot of light and fresh air that we would somehow have to come to terms with. Is that going to be remembered, though, as a moment of sort of high idealism, like, you know, the moment where people signed a treaty outlawing war and it was a great idea, but actually nothing really came of it in the end? Or do you think the responsibility to protect is an idea that has a future as well as a past? I believe it does. I think our history, the world's history, is full of ideas that didn't actually succeed the moment they were first articulated. Female suffrage, for example. It took years, maybe decades, for it to become reality. But it became the norm by people saying this is a good thing in principle and worth doing in practice. The Nansen passport for refugees, a Friedrich Nansen, the Norwegian explorer, had come up with. That wasn't immediately accepted by governments. And what is this? You know, the only passport we recognize is one that a sovereign government issues. But in the end, it's now common and the UN issues the Nansen passport. We've got other examples, the Lieber Code for war that the American military to this day follows. So I would say that if the idea is out there and it's allowed not to die, circumstances may change again, just as the world of today is not the world of 20 years ago, nor will the world of 20 years from now necessarily be the world we know today. And it might be possible. That was Shashi Tharoor, Indian politician and former Undersecretary General of the United Nations, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening, and please join me again next week. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. 
We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.